Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. So you might have heard tell that there's a lot of talk about inflation and economic concerns uh, creeping into our politics and cultural discourse lately, and not for ungood reason. The COVID epidemic continues. It looks like the fall might be a lot rougher than people initially anticipated when they thought maybe we were done with this, and people are concerned. And on top of that, there's a lot of supply chain issues from the pandemic of the last 18 months that are just now kind of catching up to the consumer side of the market. So what do we do with all this? Well, It's interesting because our friend Jericho Hill, who's an economist now, has kind of an interesting take on this sort of thing. He thinks the storyline in the media and social media narratives of inflation is actually might cause inflation or at least make it worse than what it would otherwise be. And when he's talking storylines, he means kind of like a pro wrestling storyline. Now, he's written, as I have, I like to use some pro wrestling analogies when we're talking about politics and media because it fits really well. The idea of manipulated storylines that the action you're seeing is real, but it's being presented in a certain way, and behind the scenes there's some manipulation of it to get you to think a certain way or to elicit a certain response to it all. Uh, Our political media, and our politicians in particular, are getting really, really good at this, which means we need to get better about discerning what's going on behind the scenes. So we're going to turn to our friend Jericho Hill, who, before he was an economist, safely ensconced into the bureaucratic government system, actually worked in professional wrestling. He worked backstage. He worked on things like being a referee and agenting matches and things like this. So he's the perfect guy to discuss this analogy to us so that we can discuss how politics is faker than wrestling and how something called kayfabe may actually explain some of the inflation concerns right now. Inflation concerns are very real. How real are they? He's going to help us cut through some of the manipulation and overreaction and emotion of it to get to what we actually need to be watching for. So that's what we're going to do today on Herd Tell. We're going to have a little bit of fun with a serious topic. Pro wrestling, politics, inflation, economics. It sounds like a big hot mess, but it actually all kind of goes together once we work through it. We're going to do that with Jericho Hill right after this. This is going to be fun because I get somebody that I turn to to explain economic things to me all the time for all of our benefit this time. So Jericho Hill, how are you, my friend? Hey, Andrew. It's good to be here today. And yeah, I'm doing I'm doing pretty good. A little under the weather with a summer cold, but uh, but I'm ready for this. I, I've turned to you for a while because uh, you do economics. That is your bailiwick. That is your area of expertise. You are now safely ensconced in the bowels of bureaucratic governance. But before that, you had kind of an interesting career path to get there, and specifically to what we're going to talk about today is you are a wrestling referee? I was a number of things in sort of the professional wrestling, quote, universe, unquote. 
one of those at a time was I was a referee. Yeah, I did a bunch of other stuff behind the scenes for them, um, doing interviews with, with the wrestlers, helping them sort of storyboard ideas and things like that. Uh, it, it was quite an interesting year and a half. Now, you've wrote about it, and I have as well. Um, I I think having a little bit of a background in professional wrestling and the way that product is presented and manipulated and laid out for folks as an entertainment venture is really, really helpful when it comes to discussing politics because in politics we have the media level, which is a presented story, and then you have what's really going on behind the scenes, and then you have the story of how the manipulation of that behind the scenes goes. You wrote it for us in Ordinary Times, but you found the same thing that I did, that when it comes to talking about things like politics and media, professional wrestling and the storylines of it really is a good explainer on the multifaceted way information is presented to us, isn't it? You know, it is. I'm, you know, when I did my time, so I, I did about a, a year, a uh, cup of coffee on the Hill, um, working in the U.S. Senate. And so one of the things that you got to see sort of behind the scenes, much like I saw, you know, in the locker room with some of the wrestlers for the organizations I worked with was um, in the in the Senate buildings, there's a there's a rotunda. And that's where a lot of the interviews are done by all the major media outlets. Um, and they'll often be, you know, three or four interviews going on at a time, you know, there might be two Republicans being interviewed and two Democrats being interviewed. And what you see on the cameras of these networks is, you know, of course, the Republicans are blasting the Democrats and the Democrats are blasting the Republicans for whatever policy of the day issue there is. However, when those cameras are off or in between cuts, you know, they're actually talking to each other like they're just normal people and they're working on their own deals and they're working on, you know, their their own, you know, sort of how are we going to do this committee hearing in two weeks and, you know, hey, your aide had a good idea here or I can't really sign on to your proposal. Sorry that I have to blast it on the on the news, um, but maybe we can talk about, you know, an amendment and I can do something. So that's what I really saw behind the scenes. I, th I think there are those um, politicians on both sides of the of the aisle that are hyper partisan and do not play well with others. But I think for the most part, um, maybe this is encouraging, when the cameras aren't rolling, I think I think the majority of Republicans and majority of Democrats actually talk to each other like normal people. I noticed, too, it's not just politics. It's also political coverage. I'm reminded of, uh, you know, Jim Acosta for CNN would go to the Trump rallies and they would have, you know, they would be chanting CNN sucks and all this stuff. And then you'd have the pictures off the social media feeds where he's taking selfies with the same people in the crowd afterwards. And we understand people get out of hand sometimes, but... There, there seems to be a large swath of people that are starting to understand that a lot of what we're being presented is a show, and then they kind of start to understand, well, maybe the show, you know, you can call it fake or whatever, but it's it's kind of just part of the process. You've worked behind the scenes in government a little bit. We need to be grown-ups here and understand that, yeah, it's an entertainment value, but this is just kind of how stuff gets done, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, when they're out there and when a politician's out there in front of the camera, they're trying to, to get, um, you know, folks out there to apply maximum pressure, either either folks on their side of the aisle or focusing on the other side, you know, to achieve a particular policy objective. So, you know, you want to you want to get people engaged and activated. But, you know, behind the scenes, you know, they're, they're that, that hyper-partisan rhetoric, you know, Everyone understands that, at least most people, I think, understand that's sort of part of the game and that that's there to sort of, you know, get their numbers up, get the fundraising up, get the interest in to, to get that. Sometimes, 
you know, Andrew, um, you, you could say, you know, there, there, there are times where, you know, uh, a politician on one side could sort of stoke some, you know, uh, activism. And that's actually just a provision for cover for some politicians on the other side that just needed something to be able to say, yeah, I can go along with this here. You know, like in, in professional wrestling, you know, we, you know, one of the things I did was I would work with some of the wrestlers, you know, behind the behind the scenes and behind the curtain on what their what their talking segments would be, the, the promos. Um, I'm reminded of, of a great quote from Eddie Kingston that I put in my my my, um, my article for you guys. Um, when he when he talks about when he talks to the camera, he says, when I talk about myself, it's a shoot. It's real. But when I talk about anybody else, it's 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 fake. It's not real. Um, you know, so in other words, he's going to insult himself. but He's not going to insult others. But these guys are, you know, these wrestlers, they're out there. They're going over their talking points beforehand so they can get the feud across the story across. Um, and, you know, we as professional wrestling fans don't see how that sausage gets made. However, when they come out and do their spiel in front of the camera, you know, we know that this is not real. We know that this is a story. This is like a movie. But we can still sort of let ourselves go and sort of experience the, the emotional heat of the moment. Um, I think that we don't have that same capacity when it comes to politics. Um, we seem to be treating, you know, what is said in front of cameras as more real than it really is. And that's not to say there isn't significant differences between the two parties and politicians. And I disagree that the politicians are all the same. They clearly have different aims and motives. Um, but I, I don't think that the, the average consumer of CNN or Fox News might, I don't think that they're quite grasping that a lot of what they're seeing and put in front of them uh, is just to move numbers and not actually, you know, um, reflective of what's really going on behind the scenes in a closed-door meeting with these folks. You wrote in that piece for uh, Ordinary Times that folks can read in ordinary-times.com that, and I'm quoting you here, unlike in politics, professional wrestling is predetermined. The winners and losers are known, but how they get there is up to the wrestlers. But voting is more predetermined in politics than the casual observer might think. Leaders will only schedule votes that win, or they should, because of this, moments like John McCain's thumbs down are so real and feel so truthful. And we've seen this again lately with, ironically enough, John McCain's replacement, Kristen Cinema, Senator Kristen Cinema, did her thumbs down curtsy that went viral and everybody got in a bunch about that. When, when we think that things are predetermined like politics and American people are so cynical about politics, Things like that poke through like they do in wrestling because it, it feels like a rare moment of realness and then people react even stronger to it, don't they? Yeah, I think so. I think we know like inherently when something's truly authentic. Um, and I think we react to that uh, quite differently. You know, in, in my time, I mean, I only was there on the Hill for, for a year. I did a lot of work um, sort of helping, you know, senators be prepped for committee hearings whether those committee hearings were on c-span if it was a big committee or if it was broadcast later on c-span three you know the what i what i what i what i saw was you know the the senators you know they they have their statements they're crafted by their aides their aides are quite knowledgeable especially in the senate um on both sides of the aisle these these are very bright people with good experience um and the questions are crafted such that a senator um, is not going to simply ask whatever they want. Um, they're going to coordinate 
uh, with their fellow members of the party and sometimes with folks across the aisle, depending on the hearing, about who is going to ask what. Because certain questions are going to be more beneficial to certain representatives and certain senators, right, because of constituent needs. Um, and so they'll sort of divvy those up based on the, the constituent needs, as well as what that center is considered to be more of a, quote, expert in, unquote. Um, and the hearing witnesses, like you often see, you know, Jerome Powell in front of the senators, or, or you might see the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in front of the senators, you know, those witnesses have been prepped. Um, many questions that the uh, that the senators would have 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 might might have found their way somehow uh, to the hearing witnesses, um, so they have an idea of what they might be asked. Those hearing witnesses have been through a, a, a lot of prep, um, so they have a lot of, of canned responses ready to go, and some of those canned responses are going to seem very organic. Um, but there's such you know th these these two hour committee meetings that that typically you know go on every week. There's probably, you know, double digit, you know, work that goes in uh, behind the scenes for everyone that's speaking. And I just don't think that, you know, people, you know, see that because they don't, they, they, I mean, they don't, they don't observe all that happening because that's all happening in, in, the, in the representatives and senators offices and stuff like that. We just uh, had uh, Dr. Keith Humphreys on the last episode of Heard Tell, and he was talking about because he just testified in front of the Senate here a few weeks ago. And that hearing was very bipartisan. It was on the, the opioid crisis. It was the International uh, Narcotics Committee. But what, since you prepped these committee hearings before, uh, you've been behind the scenes in them. These things are scripted. We understand they're pre, but what should the casual observer that's just watching these hearings look for? What are they trying to see to go, okay, this person's just cutting a promo and doing a thing? And what are they watching in the background to go, okay, this, this has got some realness to them. These senators are actually engaged or this congressperson really cares about this issue. So, one, I think if you have a bipartisan hearing, it, it, it gets um, pretty easy to spot this because the, the, the folks behind the dais, so to speak, you know, they're not competing with each other here. Uh, it could be an issue such as cybersecurity, right, that's fairly bipartisan. Um, you'll one you'll you'll see the senators actually being engaged um and and sticking around for maybe longer than just their five minute question and answer session um i think that's important for folks to know in these committee hearings the reason why they're two hours is every senator gets a set amount of time for q, q a um, as well as opening and closing statements from the uh chairman and the ranking member of the committee um, so, you know, they're really, you know, the, the, the senators, they're really trying to maximize their, their five minutes of time with the witness. Um, so one thing to note is, is like any senator, like typically is going to be asking questions where they're trying to get a talking point or a piece of evidence introduced that they can use to argue for or against a particular bill. Um, and the hearing witnesses are supposed to be able to help them provide those talking points. So it's sort of like, can I get the evidence that I want out there in the public consumption for a news media organization to clip where I don't have to do that, right? Um, and most of the time, this goes off without a hitch. I recall, however, one uh, committee hearing uh, that I that I was sitting behind the dais. That's the that's the area where the senator sit, um, where the uh, the witness uh, was arguing against a policy uh, a, a policy recommendation, and the uh, a senator who was um, the witness was a was a was a Republican witness and so a Democratic senator 
you know, asked a question of, you know, why do you not support this bill? You said that X and X organization doesn't support this, this type of bill because of these reasons. And is that correct? And that was correct because that was in the witness's written testimony that was given to this committee before the hearing started. And the senator then played probably one of the more real moments where he says, well, were you aware that such and such organization actually wrote not one but two letters of support for this very bill right here that we're considering today? Wow. And I leave a few moments of silence because that was the crickets. And though that's a very real moment because clearly that witness was not prepared well enough and a major talking point that the Republicans were trying to get across just completely evaporates, right? And of course, that's happened on the that, that would happen to Democrats too. And I, I I'd want to make it clear I'm just not signaling out you know Republicans only, but that was just one of those moments that it just stuck with me of just like just just how real that was of a witness just completely contradicting themselves. Yeah, when you get a real moment like that, Doug, how do the senators react? Because we don't really get to see them. You're sitting behind them on the day. Do they adjust to it? Are they? How do they react to something like that when they have a witness and something just goes completely off the rails like that? So for the most part, uh, as aides and as, as the senators are going to have really good poker faces. Um, and so they're going to try not to react. Like clearly, you know, um, when I'm sitting back there and, and I realize that this witness has been caught in a trap, I'm not going to go, <laughs> right? Uh, that would not look good because the camera could potentially be on me. But what you would see is, uh, and, and I did see this in this question, was um, one of the senators um, turn around and put his hand on his mouth and sort of whisper something to an aide. Um, and there's a back and forth that's out of the mic range. And you see this going on, and the aide leaves and goes and, uh, and does something. Um, I talked to that aide after, and basically the senator was saying, who the F prepped this witness? <laughs> Find out. This is a disaster. That would be something that would actually happen in wrestling as well. But there, there's a term for all this that we use for wrestling, and I've used it for the media too, but... Uh, you've done it from behind the scenes. Just explain to folks real quick when we're talking about things like prep and manipulating a storyline and getting down a promo. Uh, there's an overriding term for that that gets used, and I kind of like to use it for politics too because I think it fits our media environment really well. But uh, can you explain kayfabe to folks just briefly what that is, why that's such a big deal in professional wrestling, and why it applies to politics so readily? I mean, I think kayfabe really means sort of um – what you're seeing in, the, in in front of your eyes and what you're hearing with your ears is reality and you're believing it's reality. However, behind that perception, it's not. So in other words, when two wrestlers are, are arguing with each other, um, you know, having a feud, getting heated, throwing punches and everything, none of that is really real. Although, you know, a particular zinger or two of a line people could react to and be like, whoo, that was pretty harsh. And sometimes those lines might blur um, real life because sometimes two wrestlers could have had an issue in the past with each other or something very personal happened to a wrestler. In 99% of those cases, um, if something like that is said by one wrestler to another, something very personal, that line's already been sort of pre-cleared. 
uh, with the other wrestler. Like they're going to make sure they don't piss each other off because you know at the end of the day, they are taking moves um, essentially onto uh, some really thick plywood with a very bare cover of foam uh, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a and and a cloth tarp essentially, um, and that hurts. Um, and they have to be mindful that they that, that they're responsible for each other's physical safety in the ring. And and you and I both know Andrew that injuries happen in wrestling and they can be pretty gruesome at times. Um, so, you know, kayfabe is sort of like believing that what the wrestlers are saying to each other is real. And kayfabe is also believing that what the wrestlers are doing to each other, um, is really hurting them. Now I want to be clear. If there is a move in wrestling, um, that happens like a suplex and you, you, you hear the thud and you go, Ooh, that had to hurt. It probably did hurt, but they're also taking that move in the safest way possible. Um, they have a lot of training on how to sort of distribute their body as their body hits the mat to sort of t put that impact throughout their body rather than concentrating on one body part. Um, and a lot of other moves that, you know, are, um, you know, appear impactful and look to hurt like the classic Ric Flair chops across the chest. Uh, I can say as someone that has taken a chop across the chest, that absolutely stings like hell. But it's also one of those um, moves that there's no real permanent damage or issue and you're basically fine after 10 minutes. And the what we now know as professional wrestling, like WWE, for example, that actually came out of the carnival days where the somewhere along the line, we don't know when, two prize fighters at the carnival figured out that, hey, we can throw punches and fake this thing and they'll still throw money at us. And then when we go to the next town, we can just switch roles and you can be the good guy and I can be the bad guy and we can make even more money. That's that's where pro wrestling that we understand it came from. Two guys decided that, hey, why are we taking these punches when we can fake it and still make money? It's a path of least resistance thing in a way, and it, that sure seems to be like a parallel for our governance right now where there's a lot of buddy-buddy when you're in those elite circles of power of, hey, we can do the, the thing of least resistance here as long as we keep it going for the cameras. Nobody's going to know the wiser, and we can keep the money going in, doesn't it? So I think that I think this is a great point, Andrew, the path of least resistance. How is government funded basically these days, you know, compared to, say, 20 or 30 years ago? What we're seeing is these really big bills like the National Defense Authorization Act or any of these omnibus funding bills. That's where we're really seeing the actual funding mechanisms occur. That's where a lot of the bit of a, of a politician sort of policy uh, goals and, and policy ideas sort of happen rather than individual standalone bills. Like just think about how much gets tacked on to, to these authorizing bills for funding version, you know, in a given year, like every senator is trying to put something on the National Defense Authorization Act because once that National Defense Authorization Act goes up to the Senate, it's going to be approved 90 to 10. And it's not going to matter who's in the White House or who's in control of the Senate. And we saw this again just recently. Now they're working on the infrastructure bill, which is, you know, a little bit of infrastructure and a whole bunch of other stuff in it. It, it doesn't seem like there's any other way to get legislation of significance through the system now other than they've kind of developed a system where we're just we're going to hold on to what we really want to do until we have a crisis point and then we can slide it in 
We're going to see it with infrastructure. We're going to we saw it with COVID. And you're an economist, so you understand this. We're going to see it again here come the end of September because we're going to have another round of government shutdown theater, aren't we? Oh, you're talking about the uh, national debt limit, correct? Yep. Among other things, but yeah. yeah. So we are one of the very few countries in this world that 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 has a a debt limit. Um, and, and Andrew, you're entirely right. That debt limit is entirely political theater. You know, when, when Republicans have had unified control, they have passed uh, budgets that have added to the added to the to, to the national debt, and they had no problems doing that. When Democrats have had full control, they've had no problems doing it. Um, you know, even when there's some split control, everybody says we're going to raise that they agree to raise the debt limit. It is entirely political theater. It's there to allow a few rabble rousers to say something and to, you know, um, you know, it does provide fuel for, for, for both parties. The Democrats and right now, since they're um, the ones not typically associated with being against raising the debt limit, they can say, look at the Republicans. They're being so obstructionist. The Republicans can say, look, we're being fiscally conservative, but we know wink, wink, nudge, nudge. There's not a single fiscal conservative really in Congress right now. Um, and and th this is all lip service, you know. Um and I, I detest this national debt limit because, you know, it is something that is there that you just ignore. It's like if the police set up a speed trap or, you know, in, in your area, but basically they said, um, yeah, we set this up, but it's fake and, and it doesn't matter. You're just not going to care about that at that point, you know, or if your kid, you know, comes in and says, I'm going to hold my breath unless you actually do something for me. And you're like, OK, hold your breath. You know, it's an empty threat. And it's also like in terms of the other side, like for the Republicans that, that want to have this national debt limit, what would happen to this kind of, what would happen if the if we actually defaulted on some debt? The consequences of that are disastrous. And this is why we'll never I'll explain very clearly to folks why we'll never see uh, the debt limit not be reauthorized, because the very first thing that people are going to physically um, feel or, or see, I guess see is better, is their social security checks will not come. And if there's any group of voters that votes consistently and at high rates, it is those elderly that are receiving social security checks. And the other part of this that comes up and that same group of people, folks don't understand economics. It is very much one of the orphaned social sciences. But the one term in economics that gets people's attention, and we're seeing it more and more on social media and in the news cycle now, is inflation. So when people start hearing things like debt ceilings, uh, they start hearing worrying about inflation. We kind of started this conversation a couple days ago. You, you talked about, and bring it back to the wrestling storylines, there's a storyline right now going where folks are worried about inflation. Should they be? What is it? Uh, kind of explain it to me like I'm five because people are starting to panic over inflation. And then if you start having a debt ceiling conversation in Congress where folks don't understand those nuances, it's probably just going to get louder as we go into the fall. So first, let me just describe the, the wrestling story that's going on right now. Uh, there's a story in All Elite Wrestling, which you can watch on TNT on Wednesday nights. Uh, plug for them. Um, and it's a story about a wrestler named Hangman Adam Page. And... Uh, Adam Page is sort of, um, his gimmick is that he's an anxious millennial cowboy. And, and that sort of a gimmick has sort of resonated with a, a pretty big audience. Um, it hits very close to home. It's very reality-based for a lot of folks that are uh, millennials and Gen Z and for a lot of Gen X as well. Um, 
and you know they're they're telling a story about uh, someone who thought they weren't good enough, um, who was a part of a very elite group of wrestlers, but thought they didn't belong. They had imposter syndrome. Um, they met a lot of setbacks. They um, took upon some bad habits. Uh, for Hangman, he drinks way too much. Um, but then over time, they slowly start to build real true confidence. They start to understand what real friendship is and not the friendship that they had with these other folks before and sort of a journey of sort of self-discovery and, and self-sufficiency and self-resiliency. And, and this is a very powerful story that's capturing a lot of, of folks' attention. Um, and I, I definitely recommend people check it out. It, it's, it's been brilliant. Fans were sort of clamoring to see the, the, the penultimate match between Adam Page and the friend that, that, that set off all of this, that left him behind. Uh, Kenny Omega. They thought that match was going to happen in a few weeks, but AW put something into the story that basically said, "Look, Adam Page hasn't learned that he can be, a, he can fail at something, he cannot succeed, and he can still have friends that will accept him even though he didn't win." Um, and so he had to lose a big match and have the friends that he currently has still accept him for who he is, for him to gain that last bit of sort of confidence to put him over the edge. And that's what we're seeing right now in the story. But there was a big tension in that story because the fans wanted the solution now. They wanted the resolution now. And then the best part of the story will be if you don't give the fans the resolution, if you actually let tell the whole story, it'll have a much more satisfying uh, ending and a much more satisfying story arc. So let's pull that back to, to inflation here. What we see right now is a lot of loud noises from loud voices saying that there is massive inflation and we need to do something about it immediately or, or else we're going to see 1970-style hyperinflation. Okay, I'm willing to go out on a limb here and say hyperinflation is not happening in the U.S. Um, nor probably, you know, in, in Canada or, or Britain or whatever. Um, but let's break this down as to why and why these folks are doing this. And I want to be careful to say, I don't think that we should be Pollyannish and say there's no risk. This is akin to living in Miami where you know that a hurricane comes every few years, but it's probably not coming tomorrow. So, you know, have a disaster plan ready, have some provisions, know what you're going to do, but otherwise go about and live your life like you would normally do. And that's what I encourage folks to be thinking about here. But you asked me to explain inflation like you were five years old, Andrew. Um, the, it might be a seven-year-old explanation. <laughs> uh, good enough. Let's try it. So, Andrew, we measure inflation based on a basket of sort of items, of stuff that people tend to buy, like food or energy or cars. Some of these items that we buy, there weren't a whole lot of them because of the, the virus shutting down a good part of the world economy as well as the U.S. economy for many months. And so that interrupted our plans to build and create these items that we would buy. And so we call that supply chain issues. And so a lot of the inflation that we are seeing right now uh, in our data are sort of due to these temporary supply chain issues because we weren't just simply able to build stuff when everybody was, was shutting down their economy. Um, and we saw this in a handful of industries. And so, you know, this is very evident when you look at the price of used cars or the price of lumber, right? Wood got really expensive because people stopped cutting it for a while. So there wasn't a whole lot of wood available. So when there's not a lot of things available, the price tends to go up. But why is this likely temporary? And so this is what I see when I look at the data. Um, I'm going to break down the, what people buy into stuff and services. Stuff, um, I'm sorry, 
stuff, you know, or the items that we buy, your groceries, etc. When we when we look at this, the price of stuff rose, but not the price for the services. Services are like when you pay for your mechanic's time to fix your car. Stuff is the part and the time is the labor. We didn't see the labor part going up to the degrees that we saw the stuff going up. At the same time that you had a bunch of stuff not being produced, the government gave out a lot of money to help people because we know that a lot of folks in, in industries such as retail or tourism really had their income cut because we sh the government said we are shutting down our economy to protect people's lives and well-being. Okay, And so because we're shutting down the economy, we're going to give you some money to help you get through this. Giving that money meant that people could buy things sooner than they would have otherwise. But the money that was given out isn't a permanent feature, except perhaps the child tax credit, which as an aside, I believe is a great policy. Um, and I see, the, I see it being supported by both liberals and conservatives because it's both a pro-family formation policy, uh, pro-natalist, but also pro-lower income support. Aside from the child tax credit, I think that's the only sort of permanent feature we're going to see post-COVID coming out of this. So a lot of this COVID spending that we saw the government undertake is just not gonna happen going forward, right? So we're not gonna see uh, that sort of stimulus going, you know, happening in the future. So the government's not gonna be giving money for people to buy more stuff next year. In addition, you know, uh, one reason why I think this is still temporary is we still have a lot of room to bring people back to work. You know, we know that the unemployment rate is still pretty high compared to before we before the COVID happened, especially for black and Hispanic persons and for certain segments of women, particularly those that um, took on childcare duties because childcare centers closed down. Um, and women were more likely to assume the childcare duties than men uh, during, the, during the crisis. We also know that if we look at how many people are employed in the U.S. to the total population of the U.S., that's that's at 58% right now. The lowest that it got was about 51% in April 2020, but before the pandemic happened, our employment population rate was 61%. So we still have, you know, a couple of percentage points to go to get back to where we were. And we were, honestly, we were having a pretty good economy for most people in 2019. Um, we were starting to see wage growth. Uh, across you know uh, you know across a broad swath of, of people, we were we weren't seeing high inflation. Uh, we were seeing a lot of business activity. This was great. So there's a relationship between you know unemployment and inflation. We call this the Phillips curve, and it just says you know how much inflation can we expect based on how much unemployment or employment there is. And it used to be uh, a long time ago that this relationship was pretty stark. In other words, we we saw a pretty clear relationship between unemployment and inflation. Now we say this curve is sort of more flat, like there's really not a lot of bend here. Um, and that basically means there's little chance for inflationary pressure to, to materialize once the economy gets running at sort of what we call full capacity or full employment. Now, um, one other, one last thing that I wanna say before um, I go into what, the, the, what could be why inflation isn't temporary. Uh, is I want to touch upon what's called a base effects issue. And you probably heard this in the media. If we look at the data in late 2019 and early 2020, and we look at year over year changes in inflation, we see they're actually negative in that period. But then in late 2020 and early 2021, we see big positive changes, right? 
but they're big positive changes because we had big negative changes right before it. And so when we look at year-over-year -year changes right now, it's sort of creating a misleading picture, I think, you know, about what's actually happening um, with inflation. Now, so, so, so as I said, I, I really do think that we have a lot of evidence that more supports the, the story that inflation is going to be temporary. Lumber prices have come down. Other goods that had supply chain issues, their prices are coming down. Um, we're seeing economic activity pick back up again. We're seeing housing prices actually uh, stop rising um, after rising dramatically over the last you know year. You know at least uh, uh, at least in the data, we're we're seeing more homes going for at list or or even under list now. Um, so that's encouraging. We're seeing you know in the on the housing market, we're seeing home supply actually actually go back up again after being well below what we consider a healthy market level. So this is all good signs that inflation is temporary. Now, what's the one thing that could actually work against this? And it's something called inflation expectations. So if we think there's going to be inflation, then there's going to be inflation, right? We're sort of build it in. Like, if I'm afraid that to, I'm going to have pain when I go to the dentist, any tiny little pain that the dentist has when they're poking around my teeth is going to be magnified because I'm already geared up to fear it. Expectations are for right now, if we pull most of Americans, um, you know, they're, they're basically feeling that inflation is temporary. But of course, there are some very loud voices that are basically saying we have massive inflation. We need to do something now, 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 now. And to the extent those loud voices take over, we could actually wind up fearing ourselves into higher inflation. And this was something that we didn't have to have. And we're only going to have it potentially because we just wanted to be afraid of something. And that's kind of, that's kind of sad. And, and to finish this, why is this happening? Because there's an election happening in a year. And uh, the Republican Party sees an opening uh, to attack Biden and the Democrats over inflation and use this as a political cudgel to get themselves you know, back in control of the House. That might lead to a very short-term win for them, but honestly, that's going to be a long-term loss for America. Not in terms of Republicans winning. It's in terms of inflation. If they win and inflation was higher, it's because we feared ourselves into having inflation. So we talk about the storyline then. What are we watching for to where that fear goes from just folks spouting off on social media uh, you understand how the government actually works on these things. What's the government steps that we should watch out for then? It, it's going to be an election year. Uh, we're getting ready to go into a fall where there's a lot of uncertainty with the COVID stuff and kids going back to school, which I think the kids in the school situation was probably the most underreported economic factor of the, of the COVID crisis because that just jacks up everything else. What What should we look for? Because if there's a lot of pressure, there's a lot of media pressure that starts to go into the Biden administration, what's something that they might do, either knee-jerk or trying to make things better that we should really watch for and go, oh, that's not good? Well, what, I agree with you, Andrew, on the, on the story of kids and what was going on with schools and how that affected people's economic decisions. You know, one of the things that we've seen, there was a, there was a claim that um, this unemployment insurance benefit that was being paid was basically letting people stay away from the workforce. You know, the data that we've we've been seeing and the studies that I've been reading really suggest that when these UI benefits were taken away, folks did not return to the extent that, you know, uh, it was claimed they would be returning to the workforce. And I think in part because of that child care issue and what should they be doing. And that issue hasn't gone away, especially with the rise of the Delta variant. Um, 
And so, yeah, I, I wish that we would pay more attention. Of course, there's also, you know, there was attention paid to what was happening to school outcomes for these kids that were stuck at home for a year and, and doing online learning and some kids being successful and some not. But in terms of, like, the story and what to watch for, um, mainly what I'm going to be watching is what the Federal Reserve uh, is saying because they're really the, the a government agency that sort of got the levers on policies that can um, uh, prevent inflation from taking off. And, and right now, um, what we see from language, not just from Jerome Powell, but from the vast majority of the Federal Reserve Board of Governors who make the policy, um, is that they still believe things are transitory. They adjustments to reopening. Um, but, you know, if their language starts changing, right, and that'll clearly be reported on um, when they have their meetings, they have these things called uh, um open market committee meetings and they happen about i think every two months and so we'll be paying attention every time you know they kind of come out here and they say well here's where we think we are and here's where we think we're going and i'll be watching where um the individual governors have of where they think inflation is going you know are there are there are there are their expectations rising right um and so if i see those expectations rising i'm going to start thinking that maybe they're seeing that that this inflation is is becoming more permanent than, than they would have liked. Jericho Hill, I feel smarter already just listening to all this, and I, I get to do this offline with you because I'll ask you economic questions, so I'm glad to get to share it with everybody. Let folks know where they can find you on Twitter and places like that. You write for Ordinary Times. Just tell people where they can find you so that they can continue to benefit from your wismoniousness on uh, economic issues, and they may want to shoot you some wrestling questions once in a while as well. I'd be happy to take both, and I don't also want to say I don't don't pretend to be a genius on all things economics doing inflation it's a little bit out of my bailiwick where i'm typically uh, i'm a housing economist in real life um but I, but i'm happy to sort of do what i can here on this to help the readers of ordinary times and listeners of heard and tell um and i also just want to say you know i think i've greatly enjoyed being a contributor to ordinary times uh, over the last year and a half and always have intentions of writing more than I actually write, but I appreciate Andrew getting on my case every now and then to say, write something, write something, write something. Um, you can find me both on Ordinary Times and on Twitter at Motoconomist, M-O-T-O-C-O-N-I-M-I-S-T. Yeah, I spelled that right. Okay. Um, but you can find me on there, and uh, uh, I'm always happy to chat about this stuff, and um you know, if I if I can help people understand it, all the better. And and if you've got uh, interesting stories and and uh, interesting ideas, I'd love to hear them as well. I uh, we're gonna have to sit down and talk about the time where we did the movement where we took the WWE guys to Iraq the first time we worked that aircraft. I'll tell you that story one of these days. And oh my God, that one, must uh, be an amazing story. But that's another story for another day. Uh, many years ago, I was at a party for the for a wrestling organization. Um, where I unfortunately lost to current WWE superstar AJ Styles. And um, let's just say that I had to do something pretty embarrassing uh, at, the, uh, at that party. And um, while, while, you know, while, while I did it, <laughs> um, uh, wrestlers can be, can be interesting in the stipulations they put. Hey, hey, if you're booked, you got to perform what you were booked to do. That's how that works. But uh, we'll you uh, know if I wanted to have their respect and be able to to interview them and and do that. You, if you're gonna be with the crew, you got to be with the crew 100. percent And so, yep, I lost. I took the lump. I took the L. 
<laughs> He's now one of the boys. And one thing you'll never find either one of us doing anywhere, whether it's social media or ordinary times, we're never going to be in a spelling bee, that's for sure. So, uh, Jericho Hill, though, Darn I appreciate sure you. About that. Yeah, it is. Jericho Hill, I appreciate your time today. Uh, don't worry about the writing thing. Do it when you can because we enjoy it. You have a toddler. That's a good excuse. And I uh, look forward to talking to you again real soon, sir. Thank you, Andrew. Everybody have a great day. Yeah, thank you, sir. Something that came up in our conversation with Jericho Hill, the path of leash resistance is how professional wrestling developed into the entertainment form that it is now, and it also seems to be how we're being governed. It's interesting, we watch people, it, we can say something like, actions not words, but if we don't take the time to discern those actions and parse them out from the words that are being said, it's easier said than done and we kind of start to miss the point. It's a lot of hard work to do that. The easier path, the path of least resistance, is always to just take what we're being presented on a screen or in a tweet or in a viral video or on a television newscast at face value and not understand that there's things going on behind the scenes. It takes a little extra work. But that extra work is a part of your citizenship. If we're going to be engaged citizens in the politics and cultural arenas, we need to make sure we're getting good information. And part of that good information is understanding that what you're being presented is just that, a presentation. That doesn't mean it's not got truth in it. It just means we need to discern it. And that's what we try to do here on Herd Tell. We try to turn down the noise, get to really good information. And you may not always agree with the information, but once you turn down the noise, you can at least have a discussion about it. And we're proud to continue to try to present that. Kind of like they have in wrestling. You have the heels, which are the bad guys, and the faces, which are the good guys. But the whole point of all of it is not who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. It's to keep you watching and to keep the revenue going in and to keep the business going. Can you have a lot of fun doing that? Absolutely. Is it entertaining? Absolutely. Is it still a business? Yep, sure is. So let's keep that in mind that when we're watching a newscast, newscasts are business. The government, for a lot of people, is a business. It's a livelihood. And people that comment on it, ourselves included, it can also be a business. So let's all be smart fans and understand what we're dealing with. When we're parsing out truth... We need to understand the environment we're working in. A lot of people in business for themselves. It's not a bad business. It can be an entertaining business. But let's understand the business. That's it for this edition of Herd Tell. We thank you so much for joining us. However, you're finding us on whatever platform you're listening to, Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, Google, wherever you find us, if you could give us a rating and leave a comment, that would be great. We will respond to those comments, and those ratings are really important because it lets the platforms and other people to know that our little programs are worth checking out. We have 18 episodes done now. Thank you so much since we started this program right around the 1st of June, right after the Memorial Day weekend. You folks have really responded. It's grown and done well. And it's been better than we even thought it would be received. We understand what we're doing here isn't really flashy. It's not a trending thing. It's going to be a little bit of a slow burn. But it's finding its audience. And that's because you're taking the time to listen to what we're doing. So we're going to continue to make sure your time is well spent by giving you the best information we can possibly give you. Giving you good guests that you may not get to hear other places. But that you need to hear as part of our discussions on college learning politics. As always... Thank you. None of this works without y'all listening. So wherever you are across the street and around the world, we really hope this finds you and yours to be well. Till we talk to you again, y'all take care. 
All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.